Welcome to Untangling Christianity, episode number seven. On this show, John and Greg attempt to diffuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl confused ideas, and discover the treasure in Christianity. We hope you come along for the conversation. You can be part of it by leaving comments at the website, untanglingchristianity.com slash seven. You'll also find related notes and links for this episode in the same place. So Jesus died for me, so the least I can do is love and obey him. Does that sound more or less what you typically hear? Yeah, it's a total guilt trip. Okay. We've gone down this road a couple of times. So I was listening again to the first, you know, our podcast of the first chapter of Not a Fan, and this idea kind of came up. I don't think I was prepared for it at that point, so I sort of stumbled through it. And I thought to myself, you know, you really should, Greg, you really should try to sit down and formulate this as a blog post so that it, it really is clear um, and I think that the guilt trip idea or notion that you've raised is a good one. <clears throat> I mean, I think that there I mean, are Keith, a lot of... Keith Green used to say, you know, Jesus rose from the dead and you can't even get out of bed. Yeah, I remember that. And on one level, yeah, wow, we're, you're such a lazy person. You know, Jesus did this amazing thing of completely, he was 100% in, he gave his entire, he gave his life. Mm-hmm. And you can't even get out of your get out of bed to read your Bible or whatever. Yeah, but like a lot of this stuff, what is that? Is that, re- is that really a lasting message? Is that really mm-hmm. ultimately helpful? Does that really? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's it's like a parent saying, "After all I do and provide for you, the least you could do is clean your room." Is that? Is that really a lasting, helpful motivation? Mm-hmm. I probably maybe it gets the room clean for a little bit, but I. Well, don't forget, there's an added incentive in there, right? Because when your parents say, "If you don't clean your room, what are they going to do? They're going to ground you, not give you elastic, uh, elastic, <laughs> <laughs> give you allowance, okay. no elastic for you, buddy." Um, you know, no allowance. I don't know you. You, yeah, you might miss out on events with your friends. There'll be something taken away or not given that you would expect. But with God, I mean, if you mess around with God, well, I mean, there's there's the eternal torment to face, right? So there's that part of it too, which I think makes it all the less comprehensible and all the more sort of like, so, you know, God says there's a problem with me and is going to punish me eternally. But if I decide to love and obey him, then he's going to kind of let things go. You know, we're going to call it even on that score. And that to me, you know, when you think about it from that perspective, I think, I think that's part of the problem for me is that typically, I mean, this is a Christian idea. And so I understand that it's typically considered by Christians. But when anyone looks in from the outside, they see this um, really manipulative setup, this kind of uh, – um, more than more than just a guilt trip, you know. It's a, it's a. Um, <laughs> you really are damned if you don't. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, just kind of looking at that and trying to trying to work my way through some of this. On the one hand, you know, 
um, if you're approaching this from an, as an outsider to Christianity, the whole matter smells fishy. The whole idea is fishy. Well, taken I think from the, the typical Christian perspective, and yet Christians have no sense of this, and that for me is a big issue just on its own. You know, we're encouraging Christians want to create disciples; they want to create followers of Jesus, and yet they're proposing this model that says, "Listen, you're screwed." And not only are you screwed for something, not only are you in a position of, uh, not only are you in a really hard place, but man, you're going to be tormented forever. So here's your, here are your options. And, and the way that that's put across, there is no way, as we've talked about before, for this to be anything other than a sort of get out of hell free card. We're back to Kyle Eidelman, page 21 of Not a Fan. The most important thing to do is, you know, are you going to heaven or are you going to hell? And it's, it's all about... Um, you know, right now you're in a state of being punished. Your punishment is what you deserve. It's what you're supposed to get. And don't, don't question the fact that it really doesn't make sense to you that God could be good and say that your, your initial state is punishment. Like, don't question the fact that those two things don't go together in your mind at all. And instead, focus on the fact that you might get, not instead of punishment, you might get a really good prize. And it's 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 this it's it's really warped when you look at it from that perspective. At least so so it seems to me. No, I would agree. I would temper it a little bit by saying, I think. I well, I have seen other presentations of the gospel that was more about. There's so many nuances. I mean, there's so many different ways this can be presented. But I I think I have seen other presentations where it is more about love and you know that Christ loved us so much that he was willing and wanted to do this um and yet i i kind of think of you know the classic billy graham crusade i think i went to one of them when i was i want to say yeah i think i went to one of them when i was younger mm-hmm. it was a long time ago mm-hmm. but i want to say that yeah the outcome of that or any of the other altar calls that I've witnessed, yeah, they do kind of ultimately come down to where do you want to spend eternity? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and Which, I've, given, I've... given how hard, I don't know, I guess it depends on how thick they put it, lay it on, uh-huh. as to whether I think I would consider it manipulative or, or, you know, this is how we understand the Christian message and we don't want we we do want you to be in eternity in heaven so here's how we believe that you get there and you know it's up to you but i don't know that there are too many presentations that are as are that hands off and that's what i loved about labrie labrie there was no hand wringing there was no Oh no, we hope that by the time John leaves here that he's made the right decision and has the right beliefs. It was just here's what we think the answers are and we love you no matter what you decide. Yeah. Yeah, and I I guess I think too though that there was like the way that I I see what you're saying that you know, you would temper it in a different way and I'm I'm being intentionally uh I don't know if I'm maybe I'm being intentionally extreme. Extreme seems a bit extreme. You're being radical. <laughs> well, like you know, these I'm books, it, these books are radical. 
I'm putting it in a fairly <clears throat> in a fairly I'm putting it in a in a in a in a very abrupt light. I don't think I'm putting it in a bad light. I think that there are many uh portrayals or many presentations uh you know if someone is sort of presenting quote unquote the gospel to a quote unquote unbeliever that it can very well come across like this. It could come across more uh more openly. There could be more of an emphasis on love as you suggested. I guess what I'm getting at the heart of what I'm seeing is the entire presentation is wrong. The entire orientation is not radically off. In other words, it's not like the facts are something totally different. But the notion itself, there are a number of notions in here that are mistaken. They're, they're deeply mistaken. And because of that, we've got this really problematic thing that we're trying to, to these problematic things we're trying to reconcile. No, notably, we're trying to reconcile the goodness of God with this notion of eternal punishment. And I think that's a huge issue. And secondly, we're trying to reconcile the notion of being in love with God with this kind of initial situation, this initial kind of meeting. It's like you meet somebody. Here, you're going to meet Jesus. And you know what that's going to be like? It's going to, I'm going to tell you about Jesus dying on the cross. This is kind of like you sitting down to Jesus with, you took the coffee with Jesus. And um, that, that's the introductory uh, kind of preamble. And then what you're supposed to do is out of that, you're supposed to love Jesus, love and obey. Now, that is not a natural response. Even if I can get my head around the idea that Jesus, you know, this idea that Jesus died for me or came to save me from my sins, um, you know, which I think is totally false. And I think the Gospels, you know, all you have to do is read the beginning of the Gospels. And yes, I am being fairly emphatic about this. But if you, uh, here, let's just, let's just dive in. I just happen to have a Bible here. Let's just start off, we'll just go through it. Matthew, Matthew 3. In those days, and this is, this is we've just gotten through the beginning of Matthew, Matthew 1 and 2. We've got some um, introductory ideas about, we sort of set the scene for who Jesus is. Uh, there's been a little bit about... Uh, well, we've, we've done a, a genealogy uh, to begin Matthew. And Luke does the same sort of thing, I believe. Matt, Mark doesn't. But we, we, the story really starts off with Jesus kind of getting into it in Matthew 3. And there you go, Matthew 3, verses 1 and 2. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. This is John starting it off for Jesus, who then later says, this is, this is you know, the gospel writer quoting Jesus, in 4, verse 17, for the time, from that time, Jesus began to proclaim, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. We see the same thing in Mark. We see the same thing in Luke. It's not about Jesus saving me from my sins or dying for me. It's about Jesus inaugurating the kingdom of God, which but it does not. But it's also saying to repent. Yeah, it's saying to repent, but it's not about coming to save me from my sins. It's about me being in right relationship within the kingdom of God. And that's Kingdom where, re- and so repentance is the way to set that relationship straight. I think at that point in time, that's what was needed, and I think probably with us, it's what's needed as well. I don't think it's always repentance. Sometimes it's, uh, you know, pay attention. Sometimes it's calm down. You know, the Mary and Martha thing, where the one is working and kind of off doing things, and the other is sitting there just listening. Right, it's not always a matter of, of repentance, but I think the the point being that the notion that Jesus came to die for me or came to save me from my sins makes me the focus. 
I am the focus. And God says, no, I am the focus. This is, Jesus came to set up the kingdom of God, which did not begin with you. It began with me as the creator. It is not about you. It is about me as a sovereign God. It's about me reigning. Because why? Because I am, I am the sovereign. I am king. I am the one who is overall. I am the one and, and the only in that regard. That's so subtle. It is subtle. It is subtle, but it takes it away from this, this idea of Jesus came to die for you. And so the least you can do is what love him or, or be obedient to him. And when you, I guess when I'm, when I see that, when I listen to that sort of idea, it seems completely skewed. If somebody came, you know, and sat down to coffee with me and presented this to me, uh, I would be, first of all, shocked. You know, so hold on, hold on, hold on. You, you, you died and you had to die because of what? And what, what's the situation here? And I guess for Christians, we, we, we cannot, we do not seem to be able to conceptualize that somebody who is outside of this viewpoint would have any difficulties with it. Or if they did, the, that the only difficulties that they have are because they don't have the Holy Spirit helping them understand how it really does all make sense. But this is very dangerous. Because imagine you have believed something that really doesn't make sense, that isn't part of this. So I've just gone through and said how, you know, we are not central. This was not about saving us from our sins or Jesus dying for me. It's about Jesus coming to set up the kingdom of God. And we could go through, what is it? Mark, I think it's Mark 1.14, right? I mean, I can just keep reading these. Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe in the good news. And then, you know, the beginning of Luke, I think it's Luke 4. Where Jesus is kind of, and he keeps making these statements, right? Luke, Luke 4 is really direct. Luke 4, 43 is Jesus saying, but he, Jesus said to them, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. Luke really spells it out. This is why I'm here. This is my mandate. And so this confusion, when we say that this, that we've, we've understood something correctly and that when other people who aren't Christians simply don't have the Holy Spirit illuminating it and making, illuminating them and making it clear for them, we're trapping ourselves in an uncorrectable error. And this is for me what is really wrong. What can be really wrong is that Christian communities as almost statements of faith or articles of, of what it means to be part of that community believe something that cannot be questioned. That cannot be judged, certainly not from somebody from outside. Because we've got this idea that everybody from outside, well, they're, they're unilluminated anyways. They're dim. They don't have God's spirit helping them understand the way we understand. If but, they only had that, they'd get it the way we do. But I don't and, see that message in these books. I feel like Not a Fan or Crazy Love by Francis Chan, these are books written to Christians for Christians. Right. So, so, so go go on. Well, so I know, I saying. guess what I'm the notion that Jesus is, and then by the way the the idea of Jesus sitting down to coffee with you is from not a fan where Adelman uh -huh. lays out the scenario of Jesus sitting down meeting Jesus at a coffee shop and Jesus wanting to define the relationship with you. Mm -hmm. uh, are you in or are you out? So. Mm -hmm. So, I guess all I'm saying there is the idea of sitting down with Jesus sitting down with you at coffee and saying, do you want to accept me because I die for you? I'm not sure where that's come, coming from. Well, I guess I'm saying that 
the the notion that um, you know Jesus died for me, so the least I can do is love and obey Him. Um, it, it's a completely uh, even if I uh, even if the idea of Jesus dying for me, and we've talked about you know I've just talked about how. Yeah, it's it's not really like that, right? The kingdom of it's about the kingdom of God, Jesus inaugurating the kingdom of God, that kingdom of God including me. Um but even if that idea of Jesus' death having impinging on me and having a meaning for me, having an importance for me, even if that makes sense to me and I say, Okay, I can kind of get that, I can kind of go with that. Um, the idea that my response out of that would be love and obedience is not natural. I might be grateful. I might, I might be in awe. And out of that gratitude and that awe, I might want to understand who this entity, this Jesus is better. And out of that, I might develop a relationship. And within that relationship, I may taste and see, as the psalmist writes, that God is good. I may literally understand how and how much God loves me. Out of that... I can love and obey God or love God out of which I want to obey God. But the, the, the sheer and simple idea that when presented by the notion of Jesus' death that, has, that is impactful and meaningful for me, that that should prompt love and obedience is ridiculous. <laughs> okay. It is, it is not a natural response. It is not, you know, um, Somebody, if you found out that your kid was walking across the street, you're in the store, your kid's walking across the street, somebody jumped in front of a car, grabbed your kid, and, and saved that child who would have died, what is your response to that person? Are you in love with that person? Or are you just like overwhelmed, grateful? Like, and this is probably the maximum possible level of impact that telling that story could have on somebody who's not already within that culture, Right? The, the kind of analogy I'm drawing with, you know, your child walks across the street and is saved by a stranger. I think that I couldn't imagine a more powerful impact that the story could have. I could certainly imagine it would have less of an impact. But let's, let's just, just take it to the max and say, this is how it strikes you. What's your, what's your emotional response to that person? Well, gratefulness, but I also feel like I might want to do something for them. Okay. Which kind of cuts against what I feel like what you're arguing What's, well, give me more. What would you want to do? Thank them in some way. Uh, buy them something? Oh, that sounds cheap, but... Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't want to express my gratitude in some way, maybe more than just thank you. And what that gratitude would be, I don't know, but... Okay. But I, but are you in love with them? No, no. Would you, would you if they said, listen, I'm a... Uh, no, I wouldn't love them because I wouldn't know them and I would have no experience of who they are as a person. I would just have the experience well, of the act that they performed, which was saving my child. Whoa, hello. <laughs> That's the, the say that say it again. <laughs> say it again, seriously. I don't think I can. <laughs> you wouldn't love them because you didn't know them. You didn't have any relationship with them. You only had this one act of them saving your child. Right, which is, and the reason I couldn't remember what I said is I keep looking at, I've got on my desk here, Crazy Love by Chan, because we've been mm-hmm. kind of talking about it at the end of chapter three, and I keep going back to it, and I made some notes right before we started talking, and I keep wondering if it ties in here. 
Tell me. Well, we're talking, what keeps coming up, and I I underlined a few times because I've seen it in the first few chapters here, is he keeps saying, do you believe? Do you believe? So towards the end of chapter three, he says, uh, What what page are you on? 62. I'm Uh I have the old version, and so I might be off by just one page. I've been comparing the two, but all my notes are in the older version, not the revised and updated version. Okay. So it's a paragraph that starts, The good news, the best news in the world, in fact, is that you can have God himself. Wow, this actually ties in exactly what you were saying. Do you believe, and I understand, do you believe that God is the greatest thing you can experience in the whole world? Do you believe that that the good news is not merely the forgiveness of your sins, the guarantee that you won't go to hell, or the premise of life in heaven. And I underlined believe, and I wondered, what if you substituted believe for experience? Ooh. Because I believe those things, I don't experience them. Ah. And then at the end of the chapter, again, he says, do you really know and believe that God loves you individually and personally and intimately? Do you see and know him as Abba Father? Do I know? Do I know and believe? Mentally, yes. Do I experience? No. And then I also wrote at the end of here, okay, so what if I answer these questions? No. Now what? <laughs> um, That's great. So, and I'm not trying to be sarcastic. I, it was a, I wrote it in the book. I was like, okay, so if I answer no to these questions, now what? That gets to one of my overall frustrations with these kinds of books is the setup. The, do you do this? Do you believe? Do you think? Do you act this way? And if the answer is no, Ooh, look then out. what? Yeah, the, the, yeah, then the ominous music might start, or who knows? Right. So I don't know if I've taken us off track or whatever, but that was just a tangent as to why I couldn't repeat what I had just said, because I was thinking about I was like, this just feels like this ties in somehow. You know, um, I think you're I, – I think this is really helpful. Um the the other irony and hold that thought is mm. I just was reading Matthew four yesterday, oh, right. and had some ideas about it too. So we can go there later. Okay. Wow. Well, yeah. Your page sixty two is my page sixty four. I'm right there with you. And um, I mean, I think that's a fantastic idea. Substituting the idea believe for the for the the word believe for the word experience, and and I mean. If you believe, why do you believe? And what could it possibly mean to believe that God loves you if you have not experienced God loving you? Like, what could that possibly mean? And so I guess what I'm, what I'm, I, I, my orientation in terms of God and in terms of Christianity is to take as seriously as possible the kind of if you like, greatest commandments or the, 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 the top priorities that I see articulated in the Gospels for Christians. Loving God, love yourself, love your neighbor as yourself. But primarily, we're beginning with this idea of, of loving God. And yeah, I mean, I thought this page in, not a, uh, pardon me, um, in Francis Chan's Crazy Love was really important as well. And I picked out just a, a few, like at the bottom there where you, where you just finished reading, um, our love, this is the second last paragraph, our love for him, meaning God, always comes out of his love for us. 
and then two sentences down, do you really know and believe that God loves you individually and personally and intimately? Do you see and know him as Abba Father? And my, my response to this was that Francis Chan's task, I mean, I think these things are really important, but I think the task here is to relate the one to the other. God loves us. Our love from him comes out of his love for us. Do you know and believe that God loves you individually, personally, intimately? Well, how? How do I do that? What's that about? What does that look like? And my expectation is Francis Chan's going to tell me what this looks like for him. Right? And to me, this is a classic construct. The classic construct of these, we've got three or four building blocks here, and you get to the end, you, you get to the final building block, and you're supposed to be able to answer the question. And well, I don't, I'm not even sure th- th- that I agree with all the building blocks. Yes. Yes. Or the notion that, you know, you're supposed to answer the question out of material in a book when the answer to the question can only come through your own personal lived experience. I mean, this may prompt you to think about your experience, to ask you how you've interpreted it, to ask you what's involved in it, or to say, hey, you know, maybe you want to seek more. Maybe you want to seek more experience with God so that you can be able to be in a, in a type of relationship like this. But that's not typically what I hear coming out of the books. And I typically, my, my hunch is I'll be, I'll be super surprised and I'll be very um, happy if through this book, Francis Chan connects these two ideas, that God loves me first and that I'm supposed to love God as a result. If he can bring these two things together for me in this book by showing me A, what this means for him, and B, how this might work for me in practical terms, not just how it should work or what Bible verses are connected to it. I'm going to be really happy. I think that's going to be really valuable. And but I, guess I thought this, you were just saying that was that you disagreed with that. That one should come out of the other. That because God loves you, you will love him. I thought you were disagreeing with that. You know, I'm saying that there has to be an experience of that. I mean, I, I do love God. I am, a, I am a Christian. I do believe very Because deep. you felt loved by God. Because you have, feel, and do feel loved by God. Yes, and I can tell you what those things are. I can tell you when they occurred. I can tell you why, they occur, why I think they occurred. I can tell you why, for me, I'm reading it as, I, I think this is God. This, and God's really huge in this. God kind of undergirds this experience, right? And you may disagree with me. You may think that these aren't very particularly moving experiences, or that maybe uh, you don't see God as visibly in them as I do. That's fine. As long as you can understand, as long as I can give you something that you can understand. Because we're not talking, this isn't a mystery novel. This is, this is plain, clear, everyday stuff. The mystery of God comes in in many different ways, but it does not come in in terms of God loving you. If, if you think, or if someone listening to us is thinking that the notion of God being mysterious or God being beyond my comprehension uh, comes into play when we're talking about or, or thinking about or experiencing the notion of God loving us. That is simply a false notion. There is no way that human beings are set up to work with this idea that God loves me as some sort of hypothetical construct when in every other parts of our life, parts of our life we can point to uh, key relationships we have. And if someone was to say to you, you know, do you think your mom and dad loved you? You could say yes, and you could tell them why. It's not about convincing somebody, but it's about making it clear enough that people understand what you're talking about. 
And if we can't do that with God's love for us, there is a big problem. Either we're using the wrong word, we're using the word love when we mean something else. Because love is clear enough, right? It's not, it's not, I, I can talk to you about a situation with a, my parent or with my sibling or with my spouse. And you may say, I don't really see a lot of love in that. But you're not sort of scrambling, scratching your head saying, what are you talking about? How, how is this in any way related to love? Right? This is the issue I'm getting at, is that we seem to be making almost this, this category mistake. It's like we're talking about an oil change when we're talking about somebody loving us. Those two things just don't go together. They're just not even part of the same sentence. It's not the same thing. It's a mechanical process versus a relational reality. So we can argue about whether that reality is real. But if we're talking oil changes instead of love, so to speak, there's a big problem with our Christianity. And this for me is one of the biggest issues I have because it comes back to this kind of uh, basic kernel. We want to reduce what Jesus has done to dying on the cross and to somehow kind of um, dealing with this idea that – dealing with this kind of alienation that exists between human beings and God. And I think that that idea – that reality of alienation is important. And I think that what Jesus has done to overcome that is important. But I think the next step doesn't follow. Jesus has dealt with alienation with God. Therefore, you love him. No, I may be glad, you know, if I, if I can kind of get my head around it and I kind of assent and say, okay, there's some sense to this notion because a lot of people don't. And I think that's fair. And I think a lot of Christians are completely unaware of that. They can't even kind of conceptualize that. And I think that's probably where a lot of the, the disconnect comes when Christians speak with non-Christians is that they, they don't think it's right that non-Christians don't conceive of the kind of bizarreness of this idea. Um, but if you can, if it's not bizarre, if it makes some sense, um, yeah, I mean, understanding that God loves us is literally being loved by God. It's just like Francis Chan's first sentence. Our love for him always comes out of his love for us. Great. I agree. What does that love look like? What does it look like to you, Francis? And what might it look like to me? And so far in the book, he's coming from this perspective, he seems to be coming from this perspective of talking about how amazing the universe is and how amazing the world that God created is. Mm-hmm. Some of my notes along that line it started to get under my skin is we believe this or we respond this way today. <laughs> we respond in awe when we see a sunset. We respond in awe. We, we, we. It's like, no, you, 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 you have this emotional and or mental response to God. And that is great. I read these books sometimes though feeling like, there's something wrong with me because I myself don't have the same response. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. And this is, I guess for me, where chapter three, I think is going to be pivotal in this book because yeah, I, I see that through chapters one and two. In fact, at the end of chapter two, so it might be like page, I don't know, 51 for you. The very last bit, last, totally last bit of chapter two. He's like friends, we need to stop. This is the second last paragraph. 
we need to stop living selfish lives, forgetful of God. And, and his very last words in that paragraph, I'm going to skip a few sentences. He, meaning God, is everything. And so that's kind of the conclusion that I think he's coming to out of this, all of this uh, investigation of the world around us. But, but then in chapter three, he turns to this idea of, you know, who is his own father. And he begins to draw these parallels and contrasts between his dad and God as, as father. And, and on the one hand, I thought this was really helpful. Um, it's really interesting. But on the other hand, um, he's, kind of, he's kind of going some places that, again, seem to be kind of really stuck in, stuck in the text. And I think, I think there's a, the difference I want to draw out here is the difference between seeing the text as an example of who God is versus understanding God through my own experience and seeing how that is both informed by and it's made by the text and how my understanding makes the text clearer. So he's got this, um, he's quoting, he's in a, the subsection just for, for pages, I'm assuming it could be your page 54, 55, uh, dad in lower case letters and dad all in capitals and he's looking in matthew verse uh chapter seven and it's um i'll just i'll just read it read it, the whole thing it's only five or six verses he's he's quoted one verse but i'll read the whole thing in that section um it's verses seven through um eleven asking it will be given to you I'm reading from the NRSV, by the way. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be open for you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who searches finds. And for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Is there anyone among you? And this is the important part. This begins at verse 9 and goes through 11, the next two verses. Is there anyone among you, if your child asks for bread, will give a stone? Or if the child asks for fish, will give a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And he's got this section in here and the part I highlighted um, and I really agreed with. uh, For me, it's on page 27 and it begins, it's the beginning of a paragraph and it says, My own love and desire for my kids' love is so strong that it opened my eyes to how much God loves and desires us. And on the one hand, I thought, yes, that's true. Pardon me, that's true. And then um, this other part in the the following paragraph, I think is quite important for, for Chan. Through this experience, I came to understand, to understand that my desire for my children is only a faint echo of God's great love for me and for every person he made. I am just an earthly sinful father and I love my kids so much it hurts. How could I not trust a heavenly, a heavenly perfect father who loves me infinitely more than I will love, ever love my kids? And then he quotes Matthew 7, verse 11, which I've just read. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And on the one hand, I thought to myself, you know, this is really strange. Because he, he, he's mixing two things here, right? Well, isn't that passage, I just, I just pulled it up, but I'm looking at the message version. Isn't this yeah. passage about something a lot bigger and different than this? Yeah, it is. <laughs> okay. And I wasn't trying to play the proof text card. I just was, I, I've just been reading while you were reading them. And I was like, am I in the, I kept scratching my head thinking, am I in the right 
chapter or did Eugene Peterson just complete a, <laughs> write a completely different translation of this section? <laughs> no, no. And I, the parallel in Luke, if you look in Luke, uh, kind of, I don't know, six through 13, 14, uh, the parallel in Luke, he might've used more, uh, it might've been more to his, it, it has the meaning more that I think that he's looking for, but I wasn't, if I leave that aside, on the one hand, like it's just, just what he, if I, I'm going to read this part again, my love and desire for my kids is so strong that it opened my eyes to how much God desires and loves us. It, but it skip. also, it's all a mental exercise. Well, well, that's it. And it's this really bizarre mix of stuff. Like, listen to this. Through this experience, I skipped two sentences, but the sentences talk about how much his daughter loves him. Why don't, just, ex- why don't you just read the whole thing so okay. nobody can accuse us of picking and choosing? <laughs> All right. My own love and desire for my kids' love is so strong that it opened my eyes to how much God desires and loves us. My daughter's expression of love for me and her desire to be with me is the most amazing thing. Nothing compares to being truly exuberantly wanted by your children. Through this experience, I came to understand that my desire for my children is only a faint echo of God's love for me for every pers- and for every person he made. I am just an earthly sinful father and I love my kids so much it hurts. How could I not trust a heavenly, heavenly perfect father who loves me infinitely more than I ever love my kids? <clears throat> the problem I see here is that what, what experience helped you understand how much God loves you? I hear you talking about your kids and how much you loved your kids. I hear you talking about your experience of how much your daughter loves you and the response you had here. But this is what this is what doesn't connect for me, and this is it's indirect. I think I see where you're going. Well, it's indirect. He's not talking about I had this experience of God loving me in this way. Exactly. It's exactly. indirect through okay. And he's he's quoting what God is. He's he's kind of doing the 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 you know <clears throat> if it's if it's a ten out of a hundred for me, if my love for kid, my kids are is a ten out of a hundred, and God is this, and then of course he's reading you know. Uh, Matthew 7, verse 11, if you who are evil give good gifts, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts? And I'm I'm paraphrasing. But it's, it's he's sort of then saying, well, God must be how many more times greater than me? And so, yes, he, <laughs> this understanding, but, but I guess what I would say when I wrote, when he writes this last sentence in here, I guess this is the distinction I would make. He writes, how could I not trust a heavenly perfect father who loves me infinitely more than I will ever love my kids? What I would want him to write is, if, if he's really telling me about understanding how much more God loves him than his, loves his kids, I would want him to tell me how God loves him more than he, than he loves his kids. I would want him to put that into context. So I would want him to write, how could I not trust a heavenly, fa- heavenly perfect father who loves me through this experience? and this experience, and this experience, and shows me the reality that I read in Matthew seven eleven. If God loves me, if I love being evil, love my kids this much, God loves me this much more. You see what I'm saying? Without these experiences, I can, I can, the, the text is pointing me towards who God is, but I find out who God is by being with God by being in relationship with God. And I have these, these experiences of who God is that bring me back to the text and say, yes, it is true. The text both says, this is who God is 
Go find out. And you have experiences of God that then come point you back to the text to say, read this text and rejoice in it. For it reminds you of what you know to be true. The text is not only informing you, it is a reminder of what you should already know. Why? Because you've experienced it, because it's part of your lived reality. Why? Because love is not a cognitive notion, it is an experiential and relational reality. We have misjudged and miscategorized love. It is we have made it into an oil change. We've made it into a functional, mechanical, cognitive notion when it's not that at all. And I, 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 my worry is here that, that we're going to see this in, in Francis Chan. And I've really liked some of the things he's, he's said. And yet, you know, he begins this, this, through this experience, I came to understand. Well, understanding is good, but tell me you've, you've understood love as, a, as an experiential relational reality. Don't tell me you've got it as a cognitive thing because that's not what love is. That's impossible. You've told me, in fact, you've contradicted yourself in a, because you told me exactly how, how and why you understand it with your daughter. You've, you've explained, you've given this story of, of, of your relationship with your daughter and you've understood love that way. In other words, you've, it's, you've understood it in, your, in, a, in an embodied uh, in your skin reality. Now tell me about that with God. That's what I want to hear. That's what I need to hear. If I'm to take God seriously, if I'm to take the most important thing I can hear about God seriously, which is that God loves me, I need to know what that's been like for you in your skin. I don't need to know what it's like for you to compare your in your skin experience with your daughter with, with reading the Bible, with reading the text. Well, because that text is pointing you to God anyways. It's pointing you to God to say, go and find out. What have you found out? Well, and I would say even if he did explain what his experience is, everyone's experience is different. Sure. Sure. And, and the other thing I would add in here too is I feel like this is the classic opening where the next step would be he's had this this mint he's had this uh, quote understanding this kind of mental like oh i put these two things together and then we transition to some bible some verse in the bible where jesus calls one of the disciples to follow him and the disciple just follows and so because that's how it works in the bible it's supposed to happen for us too so you know yes. just start following become a be a follower don't be a fan just start right now <laughs> it doesn't work okay i want to come back to an earlier point you made because it's really important um I agree with you. Everyone's experiences are different. I, 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 I'm not trying to... Um, I'll you know, flesh it out. My, well, I'm not trying to say that my own experiences are, are, are kind of the, the bedrock of what it should be for everybody else or that Francis Chan's should be. But I do want to see that we're, we're working with these notions where we're putting them in their proper categories. We're treating love as an experiential and re, re, relational reality, not as a cognitive reality. I mean, I can talk about love. I can understand love in a certain sense, in the sense that I can maybe understand how, uh, if I read a, uh, I don't know, a, a, a parable in the Bible or a story, it doesn't have to be from the Bible, how love in the story can be different than, you know, um, hatred or indifference. I can understand that cognitively. I can, I can, that works out in my head, right? But it does so because I have a background 
through my lived experience about what these different things are or about what things that are similar to them are. So I'm not sort of saying that if he gives me his experience of being loved by God, that that's the end of the story. No, 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 quite, quite the opposite. That's the beginning of the story. But it simply tells me we're going in the right direction. We've got the right sense of what love is. We're not treating it as a cognitive intellectual notion. We're treating it as an experiential relational reality. And then we go from there, right? That's not the end of the conversation. That's really kind of telling me that <laughs> we can actually have this conversation. It's like we're on the same page here. Because I'm not going to talk with somebody who's going to treat love as some cognitive, you know, whether you're using Bible verses or whether you're telling me, you know, fictional stories about what love should be like. That doesn't, that doesn't work for me. What works for me is to say, okay, here's how it worked out for me with God. And you may disagree. And, um, you know, for, for myself personally, um, I'm going to try and put it out there in, in the strongest possible terms because it's come to me. I hold it in those terms. I believe in it, and I believe that it's truly like that. You know, so I'm not just going to kind of throw it out there and say, oh, yeah, well, God kind of, you know, my relationship with my dad was very broken, and then I had this relationship, this kind of situation occurred, and it kind of, you know, really kind of brought some helpful stuff there. No, I'm going to give you, like, it's, it's huge for me, and I'm going to try to bring it out that way. You may still disagree. That's not my – in other words – that is the discussion. The discussion that I think needs to be had more than any other discussion is one, God is real. Two, God is good. And that goodness is, is very purposely directed towards you. That's the discussion that Christians need to be having with each other and with those who are not Christian. Every other discussion falls under that discussion in terms of priority and importance. And if we can have that discussion in a real way with people, I think our churches will be different places. And I think the notion of what it is, of who Christians are, will be very different. You know, it's part of that whole idea in John's writings about they will know you by your love. We'll be talking about it. We'll be, you know, seeking after that, kind of making that focal. And, and this is, I guess, what I, this is where the real conversation is. And when I read a book, when I see a book that has a title like Crazy Love, uh, the subtitle Overwhelmed by a Relentless God, I'm intrigued. I really want to know what this guy has to say. And I'm hopeful that he's going to take this conversation in the direction that I think is the right direction to take it in. Because I think this is what it's going to take for people to see that Christianity is real. It's certainly what it took for me. And it's completely changed my life. So I'm very much on board with anyone who's going to talk about, you know, God really is real. God really is good. And that goodness is directed towards you. God loves you. And I want to, that's the beginning of the conversation. And then so. So you're concerned based on what you've seen in chapter three, that maybe he's not going to deliver. I think he's on the right road, but I think he's, he's, it's like he's accessing it the wrong way. We're, we're kind of more on the love as an oil change thing. And I, I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to, ch- it's, it's too early for me to say that. And I don't want to cheapen anything that he's done. But when I read like this for me that I just read was on page 57. And when I read this, I am quite concerned. Um, 
you want to tell me why you love your kids? Fantastic. He's, he's made that really clear. My daughter's expression of love to me and her desire to be with me is the most amazing thing. Nothing compares to being truly exuberantly wanted by your children. Perfect. I may disagree, but I understand. I get it. And I don't happen to disagree. I do agree. And it should be exactly the same thing with, with God and love. I understand that you're talking about love and God, and I understand in real life, this real situation or these situations that may have taken place that make you understand that God loves you. And, and, and then we can kind of go from there as to what that might mean for me or how that might play out for me or what that might imply for you, I guess, in terms of your relationship with God and what that might mean for, then for others in similar situations. You know, and we can also talk about the fact that not everybody is going to have the same, same experiences. Not everybody is going to make the same things of, of, of what they experience, you know. Um, they might have something that so one person might have something and if it happened to somebody else, that other person might think it was much more or less important than the first person. That's fine. But those are all, I guess, points of the discussion. It's like I want to be talking about, I want to be going down the right road, going, having the right discussion, the discussion that matters most. And I think that discussion centers around God existing, God being good, that goodness being specifically directed towards me, as in God loves me, and what, how that all works out. So what would you say to someone, well, sometimes I hear kind of a subtle, I don't know if people are really saying this to me, but it's it's a little bit, I feel like, just kind of under the surface, which is, my my disappointment or frustration that I quote haven't experienced God or feel His love on a regular basis. Sometimes I feel the the response to that is, "Well, He has, but you're not able to access it because of something that you're hung up on." In other words, all these things are flowing from God to you, but you're deflecting them or you're not able to absorb them because of you're too cynical, you're too skeptical. Um, you've been hurt and you're, you're hurting on, you're holding on to those hurts too much. Um, which maybe that's all true, but I'm still left kind of scratching my head saying, okay, well, what's the next step? Well, I, I guess my, if I was in your position and someone said that to me, I guess I would, the first thing I would do is to question the person and say, well, what do you mean God, God has shown me that God loves me? What, what do you, how, how's God done that? Well, look at all the ways that he's, he's blessed you. I mean, you have a house to live in and you have a f nice family and he's provided all these things for you. And those are demonstrations of his love. Well, I remember the guy comment of a story about a guy with a garden. I think I've told you this little story before where this guy's out working in his garden and the woman says, what a lovely garden that God has given you. And the man said, yeah, but you should have seen it before I got here. <laughs> so, I mean, I know you, I know you work hard. I know you're, you're creative and industrious. Uh, has God helped you with these things? Like, I, I'm not going to kind of make a 
big comment on that. Um, I would think, you know, from my Christian perspective, I would say yes. But but do you have to take that and and kind of accept that from your perspective? No. I guess what I would say uh, really is is um, it's not a mystery. We're not dealing with the mysterious nature of God, with the unfathomable. God's love, in terms of your and my experience of it, is not unfathomable. It is not mysterious. If we're What's thinking, my problem? <laughs> well, okay. Well, I mean, no, no, but break it down. Break it down, right? On the one hand... Um, and I'm I mean, laughing, I, but I'm also serious at the same time. It's like, okay, what's what's? How do I get past this? How do I how do I get to the next level? Well, I guess I would say that the, the my basic response would be: there's two things. Number one is, have there been things that you that that could be experienced as God loving you? That you know. So, in other words, are the experiences there? The other question is, how is your, your, your ability, your faculty, your, uh, let me, let me give you a, let me give you a, an example. And I think this is fair, um, because I think she is aware of it and she's talked about it, but my spouse has for a very long time had a difficulty believing that she's lovable. And this has for a very long time gotten in the way of her relationship with God. And she would be, uh, uh, you know, she would be open to admitting this and saying, yeah, this is, this has been a problem. This has been a difficulty. And so, because in other words, if, 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 if God loves you, God insists that you are lovable. The notion that you are not lovable is to God quite literally abhorrent. Like it is, it is the height of evil. It is the height of wickedness that you are not lovable. Um, because God knows you, God made you, God loves you. Um, you are, you know, lovely in God's eyes. And uh, if you read anyone, I mean, I can read Brendan Manning and every time it brings tears to my eyes. I mean, I think it's, it's so beautiful and yet so true. So if we're in a position where we cannot accept love and God is love, we have a fundamental incompatibility. However, I think this is exactly what God is in the, is in the business, if you like, of doing and particularly in the 20th century. We see Jesus in the gospel and he's constantly healing people. He's healing people of physical ailments. More than that, demons and such, however we construe demons now, right? I'm not saying they don't exist, but I'm saying these people, some of them look like they had epilepsy and other things. Um, we have some, you know, modern medicine has, has gone a tremendous distance uh, to, to removing a lot of these issues that, you know, we still can't make people who are blind see, but we, we kind of can. We can get rid of cataracts and other things like that. We can do so much. But I think now... In our time, what God is in the business of doing is principally healing hearts. Is, is, there's a huge woundedness. One of the things that there's never an issue about in the gospel periods, in, in antiquity, in the ancient Near East, 
people, life was hard. You needed people to survive. You know, here we don't necessarily need other people to survive, right? Individuality as opposed to a communal setting is the norm. People typically live in big cities. We are uh, dispersed. We're, we're compact and yet, yet relationally and, and, you know, in terms of our interactions, we're very dispersed. And the idea that we're somehow going to connect well with God when we don't connect with other people, um, that's a little iffy. And then on top of that, you know, for whatever reason, from my own situation, I know in, in terms of my own past, coming from an abusive family, I mean, my ability to trust, my ability to love, my ability to perceive myself as lovable, were all conditioned by my upbringing. And um, they weren't very good. Those abilities were poor. And part of what needed to happen for me was to have those things in me healed so that a God who is love is interacting now with a guy, me, who, who believes he's lovable, who can give and accept love. Because if I can't work on that level, if I can't trade in that medium of love and other things, you know, um, trust and faith. If I can't work there, then how on earth can I have a relationship, a functional relationship with God? If I can't do those things, then you know what's going to take over? Effort, the will. If at some level I tell myself I must believe in Christianity, maybe because I don't want to go to hell or because my parents are, or my family is kind of, you know, would, would be uh, disappointed or uh, if there's a lot of pressure from my I don't know, I've grown up in a Christian environment and there's just a lot of pressure coming at me to maintain a, a Christian front or um, appear Christian, then it's going to come out of my effort. I'm going to be willing myself to do these things, whereas that's not what it's supposed to be like at all. It is quite literally supposed to be like when Jesus is talking in Matthew there, you know, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my burden is easy and my yoke is light. Why? Because the orientation begins with love. And when you are in love, man, it, sometimes it's like you're walking on air. Sometimes it's like these things that seem difficult and impossible are simply second nature. And I know it's not always like that, but that undergirding reality is the catalyst. It's the motor. It's what keeps things going. And it's what gets things going. So if, I don't know in terms of your question about you, but I think... You know, one, I guess the questions I would ask are, how, how is your, what is your relationship with love? What is your view of yourself as, you know, being loved, as lovable? Uh, you know, look at your, if it were me, I would look at my, my relationships, uh, you know, with my, my, my other love relationships, with my family, uh, with my friends, with my spouse, with my kids. And then, of course, there's questions about what have or haven't you experienced, you know, when you look through at the significant events in your life or what you've taken so far to be significant, do you see God in there? And, and what's it like? You know, I guess, I guess if we were to take this conversation to the next level, um, my part of what, what has happened with me is I've had a number of, at a number of points in my life where I've taken time to reflect and I've looked back and I've seen some things. So for instance, um, I saw moments where, where at very crucial times, people who had crucial roles in my life acted out of character. They did strange things. 
And the results of those were important. They were important in offering me opportunities. And, and when I say opportunities, I don't mean like job opportunities. I mean like um, chances to see myself as a more valuable person, chances to be in a, in a relationship with someone that I wouldn't have normally come across who um, had a really good sense of what it was to be loved. Um, so there are possibilities that offered me a step closer to being in relationship with God. And I look, those are some of the things, but of course I've got some bigger things that I look at and I'm like, God's just all over this. I don't have to dig too deeply, but I guess that's kind of, does that, does, does that No, I think so what I'm, sense? yeah, I think what I'm getting from what you're saying is for yourself, kind of the, the, the big thing that became unblocked was the healing of feeling lovable. 100%. And I don't think that'll be the same for everybody, right? The, the, so, in other words, I think when I talk about God as love and truth, and God knows me more truly than I know myself, God loves me more deeply than I love myself, I think God meets us where we're at. And part of that meeting is affirming how much God loves us. Part of that meeting is healing the things that are broken. And part of that meeting is giving to us the things that we need. And I needed, I needed, literally, I needed love. And I needed to be loved. I needed to understand that I was lovable. For somebody else, that could be something quite different. It could be patience. It could be compassion. Uh, it could be um, gentleness. Thanks for listening to the Untangling Christianity podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode, so leave a comment on iTunes or at the website, untanglingchristianity.com slash seven. We also welcome your questions, comments, or suggested future discussion topics by email. Send those to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com. Tune in next week for a new episode. Music on this podcast is made available by Kevin McLeod over at Incompetech.com and is licensed under a Creative Commons license. Thanks to Kevin for his generosity. Support him at his website by going to Incompetech.com I-N-C-O-M-P-E-T-E-C-H dot com. Incompetech.com, I-N-C-O-M-P-E-T-E-C-H.com.